The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I'm here today with my wonderful co-host, Deanna Albrecht. Hi, Meryl. Hi, Deanna. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing fine. <laughs> thank you. So, thank as always, thank you so much for agreeing to share your time with us today. We know how busy and overwhelmed and stressed you are, and we really appreciate it. So, thank you so much for joining us today. So, you know, on Call Between Generations, our goal is to bring you information that helps you in caring for multiple generations. Because, look, many of you are involved in the care of children, parents, grandchildren, spouses, sometimes it's grandparents, nieces, nephews, whoever it is, you're often caring for people in different age groups of multiple generations. So today we're going to be discussing uh, a problem that often results in the breakdown of families and personal relationships, and that issue is addiction. Um, and during this show, we're going to be discussing the problem of addiction all the way from adolescents through emerging adults to seniors. And we're going to begin today with Thomas Gagliano, who is a leader in addiction and self-help therapy. He has a master's degree in social work, and he's been a keynote speaker at many conferences and meetings throughout the uh, Northeast. He is the author of The Problem Was Me. And he also, by the way, is now a life coach. So welcome to Caught Between Generations, Tom. Thank you. We're glad to have you. Same here. Thank you. So, so Tom, what I'm going to ask you just a basic question. So what makes a behavior um, an addiction? I mean, how do I know I've crossed the line between normal drinking and alcoholism and, you know, wanting to play slots a few times a year to, to an addiction? Actually, I don't like to play slots, but it was the first example that came into my head. But <laughs> go ahead. Well, well so, you know, for most people, you know, we, we, it's okay to drink a little, but not a lot. It's okay to gamble a little, but not a lot. You know, the dopamine in the brain starts up and gives us that feel good, gives us that charge. But in the addict, it goes beyond the symptom. In the addict, that whatever MO that is, becomes a vehicle to make the person feel whole inside. It identifies with the person's being. Most addicts start their addiction before they're 18 years old, 90%, which means this is coming from a core belief or lack of. There's a lack of nurturing, a void in that person. That that MO, whether it's drinking or gambling, 
fills in a distorted way, and it's not supposed to fill that. We're supposed to drink a little bit. It's okay. Or gamble a little bit. But for the addict, there is no little bit. For the addict, whatever that is, it fills an emotional void. I believe that addiction is an intimacy substitute, and it's a, a spiritual disconnection. But besides the spiritual stuff, it's an intimacy substitute. The child growing up, and I could talk about me, I'm a recovering addict, somehow along the line, stopped trusting people for their nurturing needs or their coping mechanisms, but they needed something else. And then they get old enough, and there's something else becomes the addiction. The addiction becomes like a form of oxygen, as crazy as it sounds. There's a feeling inside that the addict says, if I don't have it, I'm, I'm going to die. Not intellectually, of course, but emotionally. So I don't know if that answered your question a little bit, but that's really yeah, the it, mindset it of somebody that's an addict versus somebody that just likes to drink a little or gamble a little. So, Tom, I, I understand what you're saying, but, but I mean, there is some evidence that um, certain addictions, such as drinking, um, ha- does have a biochemical basis to it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to become an addict or an alcoholic, no. but there is no. some basis for that. Yeah. There I mean, would you agree with that or disagree with that? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. But, you know, the, uh, the percentage of kids that grow up in a family with addiction, the percentage of them becoming addicted. Now, you could say genetics, and there is a good piece to that. There is an allergy to the alcohol. Processing addictions are more like gambling, sex, spending. Those are processing. Those are in your mind where alcohol, drugs are more addictions of substance. So there is a difference without a doubt. But I can tell you for sure, and this is what I do for a living. I facilitate groups. When, when a child grows up with self-esteem and value and worth, when he feels like he's good enough in his own skin, that he has value inside, there's so much less likelihood that he's going to do something to the point that he's sabotaging his whole life and committing suicide by installments. Why would somebody, you know, uh, hurt their family to the extent addicts do, their children, their wives? Why would they do that? You ask the question. Well, that's the difference with an addict is they keep crossing lines. They keep doing things that they said they would never do again, and they did it again. And usually, when do they get help? Either they're in trouble with the law or they can't hold a job. They keep losing their job because their addiction gets in the way of that, or their family throws them out. They need those consequences. But how powerful it is for somebody to fall to that level before they really look to get help. We're dealing with something very powerful, and that's why I say that that MO identifies who they are inside, and they stop early on trusting people to get those emotional needs. So, Thomas, you said something about... um when we become addicted that we're hurting our families. But I'm thinking a lot of times when we're struggling with addictions, we are self-punishing. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. But here's to piggyback what you just said. If I have no value, if I don't feel unworthy, then what am I hurting? Nothing. So I... I, I, I want to go back to mm. something you said. Um, you used a term that I, I've not heard before. You talked about processing or process addictions, right? right? So can you explain that a little bit? Well, you, alcohol and drugs are a substance you actually put in your body. It's a substance-related addiction. Processing addictions are the way you process things in your mind, gambling, 
spending. You're not putting anything in your body, but it's the same thing, and it's just as powerful. In fact, the leading addiction for suicides in this country is gambling. That surprises people sometimes. They think, oh, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, what are you doing to your body? You're physically destroying yourself. Well, gambling is a leading addiction for people that commit suicide. And to also piggyback on my life, here's what I realized, okay, after my wife and kids left me at a very young age. I realized it wasn't my wife and kids that didn't love me. I didn't love me. That's the problem. The symptom is the addiction. You could talk about all these different symptoms, spending, eating, whatever. The problem, the real problem, is lack of self-love, lack of loving me. Because at the end of the day, okay, the most important relationship all of us have is not the one with our parents, our kids. It's the one we have with ourselves. We're the common denominator in all those relationships. And if I'm not working on fixing what's broken in me, I'm going to look for something to make me whole. And if it's not going to be trusting people, it's usually going to be acting out. It's usually acting out with bullying, addiction, domestic violence, or I call this acting in with depression, isolation, cutting. But it all stems from what I believe the problem is, and that is I really don't like who I am. I don't like my own skin. So, Tom, you talk in your book about um, three essential strategies for healing. Can you explain those to us? Sure. Well, we're talking about the first one right now, awareness. If I don't find out what is broken inside of me, can't fix it. If I'm working on my arm and it's my leg that's hurting, it's not going to help. So the first thing is self-awareness. I teach this to my group. And I teach what I believe is addicts' biggest problem. They do not know how to regulate discomfort. They don't. If an addict gets discomfort inside because of their childhood, because of what they saw with their parents, I ask them, Did you see your parents nurturing each other, helping each other when they struggled? Did you see one running away, shutting down, raging? If you don't know how to regulate your discomfort, there's a good shot you're going to do something like with addiction to medicate that pain. So we talk about the discomfort. Way before anybody in my group has a slip, they've eliminated their witnesses. Who are their witnesses? Those are the people in the group that really know who they are. Addicts are fragmented, and we can get to that in a minute if you want to talk about fragmentation. But what happens is they don't go to people as their coping mechanism to regulate the discomfort. They go to this thing called addiction, whatever the MO is, to regulate that discomfort. That is a common denominator that all addicts have, and it doesn't make a difference what diversity you are or whether you're born in a rich family or poor family or what your religion is. All children are basically the same early on. They're egocentric. When my dad was out drinking and didn't come home, and when he came home at night, it meant he was going to hurt someone. I didn't as a child say, gee, my dad suffers from alcoholism. As a 10-year-old child, I said, what's the matter with me? I must be unlovable. I must be damaged goods, or my dad wouldn't be doing this. That egocentricity is what starts the ball rolling for all addicts. So the first step is awareness. I'm sorry, strategy. The second strategy is action. Actions. With awareness, it helps me know what actions to take. If I'm aware enough to know that I can't do this on my own, if I'm aware enough to know that I need other people to help me through it, it's going to create a better choice to take the direction of other people, to trust other people again. 
The third strategy is maintaining consistent healthy actions. This is no different from a child. We, we don't want to create a child that we control that does things because we tell them to do things. We want to create a child that has healthy habits, good self-esteem. So when they get out in that world, they're making healthy decisions, not because we're telling them to, because they want to. That's what I try to do as well with addicts, where they make healthy decisions, not because just because they're afraid their wife's going to leave them or their husband's going to leave them. They're making healthy decisions because now they want to. Now they feel better about themselves. So, again, getting back to your point, without awareness, I don't know what actions to take. And without action, there's really nothing to maintain. Awareness, action, and maintenance. Okay, we're talking to Thomas Gagliano, who is the author of The Problem Was Me, an expert in addiction. Um, And we've been having a great conversation. So when we return, we're going to be discussing why Tom thinks seniors are especially susceptible to becoming addicted. And is that a new thing in a senior's life, or is it just a carry-through of addiction they've had all their lives? I want to ask that question when we come back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Deanna Albrecht. Uh, and we're talking to Tom Gagliano, who is an expert in addiction and self-help therapy. He's also the author of The Problem Was Me. And actually, his other book is Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper. The Cleanup Cost Can Last a Lifetime. It's a great title. And it's also a great book, but I thought it was a great title. So I wanted to mention it, right? So, Tom, the question I started to ask before the break was, 
in addiction with seniors, is that a new phenomenon when they be, as they age and become seniors, or is this something that's happened all their lives and takes a different shape as they age? What is that? I think it's been there always because when you become a senior, you have different problems to deal with. Many of us, you know, might have lost our loved one and we're a little lonely. Many of us may have a little bit more money and feel that, well, if I have it, I might as well enjoy it. Uh, Many of us uh, may be stricken with an illness that we just want to medicate emotionally and get feel-goods. I call them feel-goods addictions sometimes where, you know, you get that feel-good. The problem is you don't know when to stop, but let's call them feel-goods. So I think that's always been around. I think what makes it much more dangerous now is the computer. I mean, for all addicts, no matter who you are, nowadays you can sit in your house, you can flip on the computer, and the ability to spend, to watch pornography, uh, to gamble, is at your fingertips. And again, you know, when you want to do something, it's amazing how you'll find out how to do it when you want to do it. Me, I'm terrible on the computer. Uh, my navig- I'm a dinosaur, too. My navigation stinks. I call my kids all the time. Help me, help me, help me. But the point is, is that what I know about addiction is that it's powerful. What I know about addiction is many times the person thinks in their, they're in control of the addiction. And in reality, is the addiction's in control of them. So I think senior citizens have much more of an ability now to get more addicted because of this beautiful thing called the computer, which is a wonderful instrument, but it could be very dangerous. And I think that that is kind of fueled more of the addiction than we would normally have. And I think also families, they figure, you know, my dad's 50, 60, or my mom, they're not going to get addicted. They're all, <laughs> Hello? That's not the way addiction works. Addiction isn't prejudiced over anybody's color or age or anything. Addiction is addiction. So I think families sometimes are a little naive about the addiction. And what I know about addiction, too, is if there is an addict in the family, everybody develops this adaptive role around the addict. That's just basically what happens unless they're going to Al-Anon or places, therapists, coaches that can help educate them on what to do if you do have somebody in the family that is an addict. And again, we, I teach people the difference between enabling their parents or children and helping their parents or children. And you'd be surprised how many people don't know the difference. So since you brought that up, why don't you tell us the difference between enabling and helping? I want to know too. <laughs> Well, uh, enabling would be where I make excuses for the person's addiction. Like, uh, you know, dad can't get up because he's tired, or I call the boss up and tell the boss he can't come in because he he doesn't feel good, or I make excuses, or I think if I give him the silent treatment, he's going to get it, that he's hurting me, or he's doing, uh, um, uh, he needs to get help. Um, There's a load of different ways that we could enable. We could be lying to our kids. Grandpa doesn't feel good. That's why he's sleeping. Um, There's a load of different ways we're enabling the addict and not letting them take responsibility for their actions, which is what they should do. And in essence, when we do stuff like that, we're keeping them more in their disease when really not helping them get help. 
let's talk about some of the addictions that that you discussed that that I found interesting. So one of the things you talked about was uh, spending addiction, and I think the myth is that most seniors actually become you know not spend thrifts at all. You know that they they're watching every penny, regardless of how much right. money they have, they're watching every right. penny. And you're, you're right. talking about a spending addiction. Right. Well, we go to the rudiments of addiction. We go to, if you want to go to the first step in the 12 steps, I'm powerless over my addiction and it makes my life unmanageable. Okay? Powerless. What does that mean? It means I don't have the power to stop. doesn't make a difference how smart I am or how much money I have or how I have this figured out. If I am an addict, if I am an addict, I can't stop. It's what an addict can't do. That's why a cemetery is filled with people that thought they could stop their addiction and never did. So I have to know that if I am an addict, that means it doesn't make a difference how old I am or how smart I am. I can't stop. So what happens with spending, for instance, is there are people that are older, they have the money, and they figure, what the heck, let me spend a little bit of money. But it's like anything else with gambling. Uh, One of my many blessings was I was just a compulsive gambler. I started gambling $25 a team. You think I ever thought I'd get it up to 5000 a team when I was gambling $25 a team? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. You think the person that's hooked on heroin thought that when they started to smoke pot, they were going to end up in jail for heroin? Or the drug addict? Or whoever, whoever, whoever? Or the guy that watches pornography because he figures, who am I hurting? He ends up at strip clubs and getting a disease. I'm not trying to bring horror stories into this interview. I'm giving you reality. These things happen. These things happen. You know, Tom, it's interesting because until we were having this conversation today, it just, it dawned on me, you know, I'm used to the issue of families enabling addicts, but I hadn't thought before um, about the fact that there are organizations, agencies, businesses that actually enable I, I was thinking about someone that I know who gambles, you, when you were saying $5,000, they gamble huge amounts of money. I'm talking about $100,000, $10,000 at a time in the craps table. Um, right. and, and one of the reasons I think they are addicted and caught on it is the casino does things like sends a private jet to pick them up. That's right. You, you know, gives his wife, you know, a full day, whatever service she wants, anything right. at the spa, gifts in their suite. Mm. All right. So, you know, they're partially addicted to the gambling, but partially addicted, I think, to all of those perks and being treated like, you know, a king, basically. Well, Um, that is part of the addictive thinking, though, too. You know, addicts need justification. I call it destructive entitlement for why they gamble. Like, gee, if my wife treated me better, I wouldn't be drinking every night. If my boss was a better boss, I wouldn't have to gamble to pay my bills. You see the distorted thinking that addicts have. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of responsibility and it's a victim mentality. So you just you know, brought into this another way addicts can justify that destructive entitlement. Look how nice they are. Look how wonderful they are. But you see what the problem is today that's different? When I gambled, and I've been clean since 93, okay, it was hard. I had to have the money. Okay, maybe I gambled more than I wanted to and I owed the bookie 20000 But it wasn't an endless flow. Nowadays, as you know, you go to Atlantic City 
and you could lose tens of thousands of dollars in your house within hours. So what the difference today is it's so much easier to get in so much more trouble because of the, the, the culture we live in, the computers, you know, uh, getting online and, and borrowing from credit cards. So the culture makes it so much more conducive to getting so much into so much more trouble, if you follow what I mean. Oh, no, mm-hmm. absolutely. Tom, there was one addiction you mentioned that I, I, I really couldn't figure out, and that was the travel addiction. What, what is that? The, the what addiction? Travel. Travel. Well, yeah, um, that's probably not uh, one of the, 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 the bigger ones that have the most power, but I guess it's also, you know, it gets to that point where, you know, you just feel a little entitled as you get older to wanting to do what you want to do, and it's connected to also the spending addiction where you might be doing and spending a little bit more than you think. And again, if it's an addiction now, if you're not an addict, you're going to have healthy boundaries. This is what I teach too. Addicts do not have healthy boundaries. They don't know what their responsibility is and what the other person's responsibility is. So I think that when you cross lines and you're doing things uh, more than you should, and I think that's more the piece to the traveling, what, what scares me more than all of these addictions for any age is pornography, to be very honest with you, because mm-hmm. you know kids are getting hooked on early and early on pornography, you know, a lot of the seniors figure, well, I'm too old to get an STD or I'm too old. Well, I don't care so much about diseases. This is something of all the addictions that we spoke about to me is the new 21st century addiction that is going to destroy the intimacy with couples because guys are going to go on pornography and get their delusional feel good. And they're not going to be in, a, in an intimate relationship with who their spouse or, 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 or partner is. The older generation is just figuring what the heck at my age, it's no big deal. Um, and, 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 and all of the porn could lead to other much more dangerous activities. That addiction to me is the one we really need to be concerned of about more than others. We've been talking to Thomas Gaviano, who is the author of The Problem Was Me and Don't Put Crap in Your Kid's Diaper. Um, And he's been giving us some very, very good information about addiction. Thomas, tell us uh, how we can contact you, get your books. Yeah, my my uh, website is the problemwithme.com and, and I just want to tell you that my wife loved that title. She said I finally got it right. She she says <laughs> I try to give her a load of titles for the first book when I got a publisher and finally I came up with the problem with me and she said you nailed it. I said thank you, hon. Anyway, so the problem with me Dot com is the website is my website. The problem with me is my uh, my one of my best selling books. The other is don't put your crap in your kid's diaper. Please, if anybody wants to go there, leave me a message. I will get back to you in a few days um, with whatever I can help you with. Uh, yeah, and that's it. Okay, Tom, thank you so much. I, I really do mean that I think you gave us a lot of insight into addiction and some very valuable information. I think I learned a lot. Yeah. Thank you. So did I. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Truly a pleasure. I mean that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. So stay with us. Um, Next is Dr. De Silva, and she will discuss ways parents can reach their depressed tween and adolescent um, before they become a victim of addiction. So stay tuned. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill and I'm here with Deanna Albrecht, my beautiful co host. <laughs> Hi. We're so. Talking. Go. I was just going to say, we're talking about hard topics today. Oh, yeah, yeah. we are. But yeah. we got great information in the first half of the we show mm-hmm. Yeah, um, about addiction um, generally and about addiction in seniors. And now, as is our goal in Call Between Generations, we're going to go back down the lifespan mm-hmm. um, to younger people, to children and adolescents. So we're going to be talking about um, teenagers or tweens who are moody, depressed, or anxious, you know, what do you do if you suspect or even know that they have become um, addicted to anything? could be drugs, alcohol. It could be video games. It Mm -hmm. could be texting, all right? So as a parent, you feel both... Uh, Deanna and I are parents, and we know this mix of emotions. So you're panicked, you feel sorrow, you feel fear, you feel anger. I mean, you're just overwhelmed. You feel everything. Um, And it's just the worst feeling in the world when there's something wrong uh, with one of your children. So here to help us is Dr. De Silva, who she is a psychiatrist who completed her medical training at Albany Medical College. She did an internship at Brown University and a residency at Harvard University. 
So I know this is very, it's a very impressive background, but you know, what I want to do right now is share with you some of Dr. DeSilva's words that are at the beginning of her book, A Psychiatrist's Guide, Helping Parents Reach Their Depressed Tween. And and I want to tell you that as a therapist, listening to many, many families and parents through the years, I, I know the struggles that parents feel. And I just felt these words were so powerful and so strong. I really wanted to read them to you. And so she says... It is my intention in this book to help you reclaim your power and confidence, to help you understand that you are still the most important person in your child's life, and to help you know that you can help your child as much as, if not more, their therapist and psychiatrist. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I I just found that so powerful. Dr. DeSilva, we thank you so much for those words. I can't tell you how many parents lose their confidence in in themselves as a parent and feel as though the professionals are always the experts and know their child so much better. Um, And I think it's very rare to find words like that um, from a professional. And so we really want to thank you. Uh, and, And that meant a lot to us, and I hope it means a lot to our listeners. So thank you for that. You are, you are so welcome. You know, in my practice, um, I take care of a lot of teenagers and, and younger children and adults, too. And, um, and I find that most of them you know, ask a few questions about medication, but most of their questions really are about parenting and how to connect with their child. And so that, that was really the impetus for writing that book, and that's really what, um, what is my passion. And uh, I'm a mom, too, and I understand Parenting is probably the hardest job, the hardest thing, and, and the most important thing that we can do as adults is to raise children who are um, happy and content and can be everything that they want to be. So, oh, well, thank, thank you, you for reading my book, too. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. So, Dr. Silva, how serious of a problem really is addiction in, in young people? Addiction is a gigantic problem. I mean, it, it might be uh, one of our worst problems right now because the, uh, really the ultimate end to addiction is death and suicide. And so if we want to prevent that, and I, I'm assuming that we all want to prevent that, we really have to look at addictions because the only, that's the only path that addiction takes us down if we can't stop addiction, if we can't prevent addiction from happening, if we can't treat it and help people really understand their worth and their abilities and get back on their developmental track and start to live the life that they want to live and that they can live before addictions derail them. So I, I, I think that, you know, when we think about addictions, most of us anyway, with, with young people, um, I think we often think of drugs and alcohol. Are there other types of addictions that we should be concerned about with children? Yes. In fact, um, I'm working on my second book, which actually specifically delves into this whole issue of developing addictions in uh, preteens and teenagers. And so um, there are, it's not just addictive substances, it's really appetitive substances, things that we develop an appetite for, like video games, like pornography. I know your guest prior to me was talking about pornography, Um, sexual addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, sugar addictions, carbohydrate addictions, eating addictions, uh, exercise addictions, anything that uh, teenagers, kids, 
kind of glom onto to help satisfy a need inside of them. And then they become like addicted to it because they just have an appetite, they have a craving for it, and they can't stop themselves from craving and pursuing a, a specific thing like sugar, like pornography, like alcohol, like, like drugs. The thing that's dangerous about drugs and alcohol in particular, though, is that they um, really connect to the brain and physically alter development. And in some cases, like THC, like uh, marijuana, uh, actually stops development from actually happening in the brain. So, I'm sorry, that I didn't know that, and, and that actually kind of took me back for a minute. Um, so, what types of therapies um, and programs are available um, to help teenagers? Are they different than the therapies that and programs available for, ad, for uh, adults? Yes, so there are um, treatments for adolescents. Um, a lot of the treatment out there right now is geared at adolescents after they've started to uh, get addicted, after the um, substance has already begun to alter their brain development and affect that reward system. Um, so um, the, the programs that are out there are mostly kind of residential-based. They are um, treatment centers. They are rehab with just adolescents. Sometimes the older adolescents will be grouped with um, adults also. Um, I think that they are wholly kind of uh, not wholly adequate for adolescents because they're not really addressing their developmental needs. Um, programs like AA, which I love and I think most people uh, who are addicted do very well in 12-step programs. They are geared towards adults um, who have basically completed their brain development and can, uh, can follow all the 12 steps um, that, are, that are available in the program. Uh, with teenagers and adolescents, you've got to think about where they are in their developmental stage. Uh, there are a number of developmental considerations. One is their cognitive development. Uh, teenagers, early teenagers, are thinking more in terms of concrete ways. So they see things in black and white. They see things as good or evil, good or bad, um, yes or no. They're really not seeing the grays and the complexity to issues. And they progress through that, you know, by the time they're 16 or 17 or 18, they've begun to really develop this ability to think abstractly. They're able to see the grays. They're able to see that a situation has more than one right answer. They're able to see, you know, that a, um, let's say, like the election, for example, that the election has numerous levels of understanding that there may be uh, pros and cons to a decision. They don't develop that, though, until their later adolescence, and that requires some neurodevelopment in their brain. Well, if you introduce a substance to that, it stops that development, and then they're kind of stuck in wherever they were. So if, they're, if they start drinking or using drugs or marijuana um, or any of those drugs, typically it's marijuana first and alcohol, um, they get stuck in that concrete way of thinking. So when they're 20-something and they're in rehab or uh, their addiction has carried um, them further into, the, into despair and, and problems uh, and they go into rehab, they may be stuck in that developmental stage and seeing things very concretely, yes or no, good or bad or, or evil or not evil, healthy or unhealthy. And they need to kind of learn, learn how to go through that bridge from concrete to abstract ways of thinking. Um, the other development that happens is the separation so, individuation. 
psychologically, as you know. Um, kids, teenagers have to separate from their families. They have to come into their own. And so that takes a lot of arguments. It takes a lot of uh, denying um, and rejecting their parents' ideas and beliefs that they may have embraced when they were younger. And they have to go through this and, and come... Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that the issue of addiction with teenagers gets complicated um, by by groupthink? That teenagers, you know, really that's what they do. Whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or ten other things, I don't know the names of. You know that you know that that influences this addictive behavior, or you don't think it, it's a variable that's important. I think it's extremely important. Um, the older the adolescent, the more their peers are influencing them versus their parents, even though parents are still extremely important and they need them. Um, adolescents do uh, have this kind of group think. They, they try on uh, ideas that are different than their parents. So they're trying on ideas that they see around them with their peer group, in their school, on TV, in the media, with other people that they relate to. And they kind of try on their, um, their morals, their values, their lifestyles, and their behavior. And so, um, so what their peer group is, it's pretty important to, um, when you're thinking about uh, helping your child uh, avoid getting addicted. So um, parents can be aware of that, can promote healthy peer groups and healthy peer interactions. So the more engaging a parent can be with their child, finding out about their friends, finding out what they do, uh, giving them ideas and expressing their, their hopes and ideas about their particular peer group. Like if they start to see um, their child hanging out with kids who aren't going to school, who are using drugs, who are not that interested in, uh, in really developing, who are kind of hanging out at home and um, on video games or, uh, you know, not, not really being productive and growing, then parents will want to step in and say, hey, you know, whatever happened to your other friend, friend Mary, who was, who was on, the, um, on the soccer team and you really seem to enjoy playing with her and, and going to movies with her and studying with her and whatever happened to those groups of, of friends? What happened there? How come you're hanging out with this other group of friends? Trying to keep the judgment, the pejorative judgment out of it but just asking those questions of, of, hey, I'm just kind of wondering. It seems like, you know, your, your current group of friends, you know, what are they up to? What are they doing? What are, what are you doing with them? Are you guys experimenting with drugs? Are you guys drinking? What's, what's going on over there? We're talking to Dr. De Silva. Uh, she is a psychiatrist and the author of A Psychiatrist's Guide, Helping Parents Reach Their Depressed Tween. When we return, we are going to be talking about um, symptoms of anxiety and depression that might concern you as a parent. You know what? Even if you are fortunate and you don't have a child or a grandchild who suffers with these problems, I, I think you're going to find Dr. De Silva's advice about discipline and positive parenting very insightful. So, Stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. 
While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Deanna Albrecht, and we are here with Dr. DeSilva. So, Dr. DeSilva, on the break, we were, we were talking about getting children ready or kind of pre-12-step um, advice that you were talking about providing for parents. Can you share that with us? Yeah, so um, kind of just briefly, um, the 12 steps are um, geared towards adults. And so for parents with teenagers struggling with addiction, some of the things, the three things that you can do before um, really getting somebody into a uh, 12-step program is to get your child off of the substance. So really focus uh, some energy into getting your child to abstain from using um, any kind of addictive or appetitive substance. The second thing is to really assist and understand the developmental needs of the child, that cognitive development, moving from concrete to abstract. So focusing on their education. This is really where, um, ed- this is how they're going to move from concrete to abstract. I have lots of conversations about education, how they're thinking. And then the third thing is that the family needs help. Uh, addictions is a family illness, and so to prevent the progress of an addictive illness, uh, the entire family really needs to go into therapy and learn how to cope with um, the development of the teenager through separation and individuation and in targeting the reasons why uh, kids start to use substances. So, Dr. Silva, can you give us uh, a specific example of something you would say to your teenager in, in, in a way that would be concrete versus a way that it would be you would approach something abstract? So um, when kids, so teenagers, you know, they believe that they are invincible. So any sort of abstract idea of, you know, down the road, uh, addiction is really awful, and you'll, you'll, you'll be stuck on searching for that uh, alcohol or that drug, and you may not get a job, and your family will suffer. Those kind of ideas are lost on teenagers because they're kind of thinking in the here and now, and it doesn't apply to them. So what I would tell teen- teenagers is, do you have any other friends who use substances? 
And most of them say yes. What has happened to them? What is their life like? Are they achieving the same kind of goals that they had wished they achieved or they were planning on achieving when they were um, a couple years younger, when you guys were friends uh, last year? What are they doing now? What about the who else in your, in your family or in your life is not using substances? What is their life like? And have them start to make those comparisons of, is that the kind of path I want to go down? Is, or, or is this other path what I want to go down? And then bring it back to their choice and let them know, listen, you have a choice. You can choose what to do right now. I want you to make those choices with information, not just kind of going with the, uh, with the flow of your peers, but Stop and think. Think about what it is that you want for yourself. You can get from A to B to C if you make choices to get there. You know, it's interesting you're talking about abstract thinking and and children being able, if they're not able to have abstract thoughts, sometimes identify their feelings. So um, you had an interesting section in your book about, you know, you know, children being able to define how they feel. And and so when you say to a, a kid, you know, a child, I'm sorry, you know, kind of what's going on? How do you feel? And then you get this kind of, Ugh, leave me alone or I don't want to talk about it or whatever it is your response is. You know, what what's really behind all of that? So there, uh, you know, um, the thing about um, depression and anxiety is that these are biological illnesses. They're not just the feeling state, uh, although certainly they can manifest as feeling states, but it's, it's their brain chemistry, it's their anatomy, it's the way the nerves are, um, are communicating with each other. And kids don't have any control over that. That's just biology. Uh, they're trying to live with it. So when a parent asks their child who's looking depressed or sullen or irritable, uh, what's going on? What are, you, what are you feeling? What are you feeling right now? Well, they're probably feeling many, many things. I love that movie, um, I think Inside Out by um, Tina Fey. Uh, there's that one scene where the, the child is sitting with her parents and she's all you know, grumpy and the, and the parents keep asking her questions after question after question. And all she, all she says back is this irritable, rude kind of comments. And inside she's saying, why am I saying these things? I don't really, I love you. I don't, I don't want to feel this way. I don't understand what I'm feeling. And that's, it's so true for depressed and anxious kids. They don't really know. that It's all a jumble inside and they don't know how to control it. So it's, it's easier for them if parents tell them what they see. I see that you're struggling. It seems to me like you might be sad right now. Is that true? What, how can I help you? I'm here for you. And take more of an observer or a more of a um, supporter, nurturing kind of stance. No, I think it's that is such good advice because I, I have a grown daughter who struggles with some depression. And so I say the same thing to her. I say, oh, what's wrong? And she still says, nothing. You know, leave me alone. Quit asking me. You ask me that all the time. I just want to process this, you know, that whatever she's going through. And I think your advice to be the observer, I think that's really helpful. And I think that'll help me next time I, you know, mm-hmm. kind of notice that she's having some difficulty you know, with depression or something, that I can say that to her. Like, I see that maybe you're having a difficult day. How can I help you? You know, that would be a much better question than, is something wrong? Did I do something? Did I annoy you? (laughs) I mean, it's such a normal response from a parent because you care so much about your children and you don't want to see them suffer. Of course, it hurts, right, to see your child suffer. Mm-hmm. So you want to fix it. I mean, that's the natural impulse. Oh, I want to take the suffering away from my child. Well, you can't take it away because you don't know what it is, and neither does she. 
So it's it's much more helpful, I think, for for the child to know that you're there for them, which of course you are, even when you're trying to fix it, uh, you're still there for them. But it's easier for them to accept you being there if you're on their side, if you come at them from a very nurturing, open, hey, I know it's confusing, it's confusing for me too, I love you, I, I wish that you did feel better, but you know what, it's a process and I understand it, I understand it's going to take some time, and uh, I just want to go through it with you so that you're not alone. Mm. So, Dr. Silva, let me ask you, we love tips on the show, so we like simple little tips. So, you said something very interesting, just a quick little tip in your book about when you're disciplining your child, when you're discussing with them what's going on, where should you be sitting? You should be sitting, um, you know, the natural inclination is to sit right in front of them so they can make eye contact with you, but I completely disagree with that, and I think the place to sit is right next to your child so that you can look at them from the side um, and not directly, and they also have then an opportunity to, if they're feeling, um, feeling particularly insecure, they can look down, they can look at you sideways, they can see you in the periphery, um, you can sit next to them, you can touch them, you can hold their hand, you can put your arm around them. They can snuggle into you. Uh, It's so much more intimate and it's connected. You've got that physical connection. You've got that emotional connection and you've got that communication connection too when you're sitting right next to each other. I thought that was brilliant. It's such a simple little thing. I mean that you can, I love those simple little things that you Mm -hmm. can change immediately. All right, and and it takes no time at all. Um, and I read it, and I thought, oh my gosh, why didn't I think about that twenty years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because our natural inclination is to be direct. You know, we're kind of we're kind of raised that way, right? To just say what 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 you want to say, and you want to know that you're heard. But with children, that's just it doesn't work that way. They hear know, well, you. You're right well, next you, to them. They feel you. Well, you, we always think about eye contact, you know, when being able to look at someone directly um, as being the better way to communicate. So I wanted to pass that on to our listeners because I found that very, very interesting. It's a really good tip. Yeah. Dr. <laughs> Silva, you have been a wonderful guest. We really appreciate your being with us. Um, once again, Dr. Silva's book is A Psychiatrist's Guide, Helping Parents Reach Their Depressed Tween. Can you tell us more contact information for you? Sure. So my website is drgayani.com, so D-R-G-A-Y-A-N-I.com, and then my office website is lagunafamily.com, so you can reach me there. I respond very quickly to email, so go ahead and email me, and I will, I will respond back to you. I look forward to it. I, I have no idea how you respond to emails quickly. I am in absolute awe, but that is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I comes straight but- to my phone, so it makes it easier. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Dr. DeSilva, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. Thank We've you really very enjoyed much. It. Thank you. Have a great day. You're thank welcome. you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So um, this is Dr. Merrill, and um, as I always ask you to do, um, just one thing for yourself. So, Deanna, what, you, what do you think one thing they ought to do for themselves this week is? Hmm. Like sit next to your child. <laughs> that's it's a good one. Sitting across from them. That's a really good one. Actually, yeah. I wonder if that's a great tip for other conversations that we have that we find difficult. You know, so maybe your one thing for this week is to try to sit beside someone when you're having these difficult conversations, as a, as opposed to across from them. Um, it's worth a shot. 
you know, give it a try. You know, maybe you'll work it. And actually, when I thought about it, I thought it might actually be more calming for you also. So, you know, just try. Just one thing for yourself this week because you're very important and you have to do that. Deanna, quickly tell us where else can they find us at? CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. That's right. All right. Just email us and also on Facebook, correct? Correct. At Caught Between Generations. All right. Okay. Have a great week. Take really good care of yourself. You do fabulous things for other people. So you really take, you really need to take good care of yourself. Take care. For tuning in to Cut Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.